Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, welcome to the Ivory Tower Boiler Rooms special interview with uh, Dr. Sophia Balsadua Sun. She is an independent scholar of comparative literature. And the question that Adam and I love to ask of all of our guests is, where are you broadcasting from right now, Sophia? I, well, I'm broadcasting from my living room on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. And any nice views that you're uh, partaking right now of uh, the Hudson River? Uh, no, I don't have a view of the river. That would be nice. But actually, I think it's better to be on the opposite side of the building because the wind coming off of the Hudson is pretty intense. Um, and in the winter, especially, it could easily result in like a windstorm in the apartment. So I see skyscrapers. Oh. That's, that's I something. mean, I think for what everyone's going to hear about your research, it fits very well with uh, your uh, specialty. So maybe yeah. first, you identify yourself as an independent scholar, so. Yeah, what's an independent scholar, if you please? <laughs> right, okay, so starting generally, I guess, an independent scholar is usually someone with either a master's degree or a PhD, so someone who's done some graduate study and is continuing to do research and kind of circulate in the academic world, but doesn't have a university affiliation. So it doesn't work for a university, basically. Um, which doesn't mean, so there's kind of a joke that goes around that independent scholar is just a euphemism for unemployed because of the way that the job market is currently for academics. But Many academics who identify as independent scholars also work in other fields. Like I know a Spanish scholar who is a high school teacher down in Florida. So she continues to do um, research. I think she's working on transforming her dissertation into a book right now. And she was at Emory University as a tenure track scholar, but she wanted to live closer to her family. So a lot of times, I guess, for independent scholars, maybe there are external reasons for why you've chosen to exit academia formally, but kind of continue to work in that realm. And that's when you become an independent scholar. So would you mind telling us uh, what was the motivation in your case? In my case, well, so I just graduated in 2019, May of 2019, and I was on the academic job market last year. Um, and when I go to conferences and stuff like that, I usually have to identify myself. So I identify as an independent scholar for that. And uh, I'm on the job market again this year because obviously due to the pandemic, the <laughs> academic job market went up in flames last year, even more so than is usually the case. Yeah, I think we all noticed that. Yeah, yeah, it's just like flatlined. <laughs> yep. And how have you found when you've identified yourself as an independent scholar at academic conferences? And for those who don't know, I have run into uh, Sophia at conferences. So 
Do you find that a lot in the audience, they understand what an independent scholar, how you function as an independent scholar, or do they have a lot of questions? Um, I think academics generally know. Any other time, like, I did an interview with a mag, I guess, kind of an independent magazine called Antigone that just got started last year. And one of the first questions um, that I was sent was, what is an independent scholar? So I think once you emerge outside of uh, academic conferences and universities, then people aren't quite sure what that means. But within the academy, I think most people know what an independent scholar is. Maybe there are some assumptions. Um, yeah, for sure, there are you know, anytime you go to a conference, there's a certain kind of like ranking system that kind of goes on for <laughs> some scholars, where obviously at the very pinnacle are the Ivy League universities, and then you kind of filter down from there, and maybe people who are trying to network may think they'd rather speak to someone from a university that's more prestigious than where they are at the moment, and not to people who... Um, perhaps can't help them <laughs> launch further into their career. But in general, I find when you're communicating with say like full professors or people who are satisfied, I guess, with where they are, they're sort of happy to just talk research and interact based on what, what you're working on rather than where you are. So that's a benefit. Um, I did read somewhere recently, someone was suggesting that rather than having on our name tags uh, that what your affiliation is, that instead the name tag might just say what your research specialization is. That way it kind of forces people to engage with each other less based on like where you're located and more on like, do we have any research in common? Which would yeah. be logical. That would be nicer, obviously. I, I mean, I, I haven't been to a, I haven't been to a conference in a while, but I do remember there being a sort of pressure like, am I talking to the right person? Am I talking about the right thing? It, uh, a lot of people sell their books by meeting a publisher or agent at a conference. A lot of people get their next job or their next editorship or whatever. Um, and some, some places are more cutthroat than others. Apparently the Erasmus conference is horrifying. Oh, because, I heard that. Well, so first of all, the the, um, the 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 program notes are all in Latin. Oh, yeah, exactly. So just so right out of the gate, and um, any any Latin that there that there would be in any of the speeches is also not going to be translated, because it's pre it's precisely that it's they're trying to like there's always so much work to do for a for an author who has so much work out there. Right, that needs to be translated and edited and re-edited and re so they they're looking for the next person and so it, so a lot of it is very performative mm -hmm. and that's the word isn't it? is that is that if you end up with um if you end up with a, a name tag that just says what you do then it would be a different kind of performance where you tactfully try to figure out a way to find out if this person can help you in the business mm. yeah and that's true better to have it out in the open yeah, yeah. Well, like the literary <laughs> prestigious one is MLA, or that's how mm -hmm. it used to always be billed. But I actually find now that the intimidating part of MLA, I remember when I volunteered a few years ago during that New York City blizzard, that will mm -hmm. always stay in my mind because I was there <laughs> I too. Through, yeah. yeah, it was awesome. I ran through Times Square and there was no one around. That's exciting. Uh, but 
it was also seeing panic. I got lost. Really? Oh. <laughs> I mean, because it was a blizzard, right? So it was like yeah, it was difficult to distinguish to the, and also I didn't have my glasses on because oh, no. it was a blizzard. Like oh, no. they were freezing over. So I couldn't read the yeah, and signs. It, and like now that adds, that added even more of a uh, precarity to um, the panicked job market attendees, right? And MLA, it always functioned as interviews. And there's yeah. like a whole day full of, or days full of interviews for tenure track positions. But now that a lot has gone into a virtual format, I also wonder how is MLA or other conferences refiguring out right. how, how they serve the academic communities. Yeah. Um, and maybe there aren't going to be traditional um, job searches like that anymore where you go to a conference and then that's how you're going to be interviewed. Um, I think they were also talking about phasing that out. Like they've been talking about phasing out the interviews at MLA for years now because they're cost prohibitive for job candidates. And also they lead to sort of weird and awkward situations in certain instances where people are interviewing in hotel rooms rather than down at the uh, tables that they have or all kinds of like, all kinds of different reasons, I guess. And uh, now with Zoom and all of these other online platforms, it's practical to do the interviews on Skype, but it does become, I guess, a kind of gatekeeping mechanism for people who can't financially swing going to MLA to do their interview. Yeah, well, and I know when we um, had met with you before, you were actually in the midst of wrapping up a postdoc application and I guess I'm really curious what, um, you don't have to give us what the postdoc name is, but um, you know, how was that experience for you? Um, you know, that one was, it was interesting because it's the first application that I've sent off this year. And I think, so this is, I think my third year on the job market. The first year I did kind of a trial run before I graduated. And then last year was kind of the ser originally the serious one until the pandemic hit uh and so this year yeah i'm on it again and I've, i always find those first few applications they're kind of a period of like refiguring out who you are what direction you think you're going to be going in this year what how do you want to frame your research proposal um you know do you have a different book title so that was something kind of interesting that happened last year when i went to nemla i attended a talk by the uh, an editor from Intellect, and she was saying that you just can't use your dissertation title, which I really loved my dissertation title. Other people seemed to love it. It was one of the things I always got comments on from other scholars, so I was like, I can't use it. Um, but yeah, so you, so I had to start thinking about, okay, well, how am I going to reframe my book project then if I can't use this title? So that kind of thing. So I've just been ironing out those details and doing diversity statements, which this year I feel like is a really interesting year to be writing a diversity statement um, between obviously black and brown people have been the hardest hit by the pandemic. And then you have the murder of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, um, and is it Armad Arbery? 
-hmm. and then J Jacob Blake as well. So I, all of these things, along with the protests, it just feels like, oh, this is a strange time to be talking about what is diversity in the academy. It feels like we should be talking about what are you going to do about what's going on in the world, <laughs> not within the ivory tower. But so I wrote that. And then, uh, yeah, it wasn't too bad. I think the, the list of documents wasn't too bad. When you're on the job market, sometimes the job calls can have just an insane array of documents. <laughs> so. Because how long does it take you usually? I, I hear all different time amounts. Some will say, oh, it took me a month to finish a job application. Or like you, it, it's a full-time job to some people. Yeah, I mean, I think it depends on how many jobs you're gonna be applying to. Like last year I did the entire job market, uh, so, which meant applying everywhere that I saw that seemed like it was even remotely related to what I do. And that, I would say there were times when I was finishing a job application a day. I mean, just sort of in very small ways adapting um, the job app or like looking for similarities between one job and the next and then just trying to change a few things around so that you're always sending something out. So there would be some that would take a lot of time because they were very unique calls. And then there would be others where it's like, okay, well, I kind of already applied for the identical position somewhere else. And so I was able to do at times a job a day. <laughs> uh, this time I'm only spending 25 minutes a day on my applications actually. So I'll have one that I'm focused on and I'll write like a paragraph and then that's it each day. So and, I, I wanna, I wanna um, say that you raised some really interesting questions about what it means to be an academic when, uh, and study and publish and so on with the, the very slow rhythms of academia when mm -hmm. it feels like life is speeding up all around us. But I think I wanna put a pin in that for at least a moment and ask you some more I mean, there, there are people covering those topics. Yeah. Um, and I think we, we can add our voices to them. But I, I do want to ask you, um, since you are going through the job market, can you tell us a little bit more about it? Like, what are, what are the big, um, what are the big uh, obstacles to, from, from, let's say, your dissertation was, was defended yesterday? Mm -hmm. And you haven't, and, and today you're going to take a day off get a, a responsible amount of drunk and tomorrow you're going to start going on the job market. Mm -hmm. So what do you think are, is the biggest obstacle from having a dissertation to having a job application? Ooh, that's a big question. Uh, some of the biggest obstacles. It doesn't have to be like one and done. For most people, probably financial support, which is not necessarily my problem. <laughs> but um, yeah, I think that's that's one of the biggest obstacles is and just the pressure, honestly, of not having that like that position that you want is sort of a psychological obstacle that has to be overcome every day. Um, you have to invent your own letterhead, uh, which is an interesting <laughs> decision-making process for someone who is not a graphic designer. <laughs> um, 
yeah, there are a lot of documents to be created. I think probably figuring out what the next step in your dissertation is after completing it. So you've got this completed kind of object, but that's that's not what you really go on to the job market with. It's not like I have a dissertation because that doesn't really communicate who you're going to be in the future for them. So it's trying to figure out who am I going to be as a scholar for the next five years. And particularly, I think when you don't have those answers, right? Like you don't have the job that tells you I'm going to be spending the next two years in a postdoc, or I'm going to be spending the next five years on the tenure clock, or I'm going to be at a community college and therefore not focusing on research. You're just kind of making it up. I think that speculative nature of being on the job market and having to reimagine and reinvent yourself for every job application as someone who could be filling any number of posts is probably the biggest obstacle and reframing your research to do that. So those sound like the normal issues that one faces on any job market. Pressure, mm -hmm. uh, well, psychological pressure, financial pressure, and uh, what we in certain centuries call self-fashioning, right? Mm -hmm. um, sorry, just have to bring in the Greenblatt. Um, <laughs> For those of you who don't know, uh, Stephen Greenblatt was a, is a, a scholar of the 16th and 17th centuries and wrote a book called Renaissance Self-Fashioning, which is as close to a bestseller as a peer-reviewed book can get uh, mm -hmm. from the early 1980s. Anyway, um, we're probably going to cut that. So you have a, so let's talk about the, the unique problems of the academic job market, right? You have to, you have to write a job, a job talk, you have to convert at least one chapter of your dissertation into a, uh, a writing sample. Mm -hmm. uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? Or is it secret? Uh, yeah, I mean, so I haven't done the job talk uh, at this point. The, the one position that I inter interviewed for did not require a job talk. Um, so that, that part I can't necessarily speak to, although I guess I know what I would probably convert because I have one chapter from my dissertation that is, has been peer reviewed and is out as an article. So for me, that's the most polished piece, polished piece of work that I have. And it's usually the one that I use as a writing sample for that reason as well. Although I do think that there are times when, so the article that I have out is in an interdisciplinary journal and it's really focused on defining what is a metropolis, which is a literary scholar, doesn't always translate to other literature scholars because it's not really about literature. It's more about thinking through the word metropolis as kind of a literary object of its own or a discursive object of its own. And, and so oh, I, really I don't always think it's a good, really quickly, oh, yeah. for, our, for our listeners, we will have that at the bottom, uh, mm -hmm. a link to Sophie's article, Sophia's article. Oh, great. Yeah, well, <laughs> that's how it goes. Anyway, please continue. Oh, yeah, so, um, oh, so I'm not always sure how, as a writing sample, that necessarily translates to more literature-focused jobs, or if it does, and I'm kind of working on trying to, trying to publish more uh, literature-focused articles, like I've been concentrating on Edith Wharton um, lately, and I have Whoa. two articles that are 
out on her right now, but, but um, not not under review, just in submission. There we go. That's the word for it. And uh, yeah, so hopefully I'll be able to kind of vary up that writing sample soon. But that I forgot what your question was. Well, this is <laughs> exciting. No, because I. I'm a fan of Edith Wharton, especially, I always love returning to the House of Mirth, um, mm -hmm. especially under these current economic social conditions. Yeah. If, um, yeah. if there were ever a bar called the House of Mirth, Andrew would become a drunk. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'd be there every night. Um, well, it's a big year for Wartonians, actually, because, uh, what was it, 1920 is when, um, so it's, we we got the centennial of the Age of Innocence being published, and then 2021 will be the centennial of, uh, is it centennial or centenary? And I always get those two confused. Um, of her winning, being the first woman to win the Pulitzer Prize in literature oh, wow. for that novel. Yeah, so there's a lot going on around Edith Wharton, I think, this year, this coming year, and then also last year, which is, you know, part of the reason I guess I was concentrating on it as well as I had applied to this Edith Wharton conference that was going to be celebrating um, the publication of that work. And uh, it was canceled because of COVID, but it did kind of get the ball rolling, I guess. So I think there's going to be a lot of probably Wharton related stuff coming out this year <laughs> for that reason. Yeah. And how do you um, maybe does do you incorporate her with this um, the metropolis? I love just how you phrase that the metropolis for you acts as this object of inquiry, mm -hmm. um, and it reminds me of um, Robin Wigman, the uh, theorist, has that book Object Lessons mm -hmm. and talks about like all the different objects of study that you could use and. I know, I'm really excited. I always find every time we interview someone, I can't wait to read your book. I'm like, <laughs> I want to read this as a book. Um, oh, and getting to that, so if you had to think about what your book would be titled, if it can't be your dissertation title, what would you call, you know, the new upcoming book? Yeah, I've, well, I've been through a few different iterations of the title, I guess. So the original dissertation title was Metropolitanizing the Urban. And that was just meant to sort of signal this transition away from urbanism and towards the metropolis that I was going to be focusing on. Uh, so then I thought for the book, I might do a variation on that and call it Metropolitanizing Urban Modernity. So I was just going to change it a very little bit. And I think right now I am telling people that the title is uh, Metropolitan Modernity. So changing the typical, I guess, container for 19th to early 20th century um, urban discourse, which is typically talked about in terms of urban modernity, changing that to metropolitan modernity and asking the question of how does that change our imaginary or does it? So let's go down this rabbit hole for a bit. What, um, can, you, can you tell us, and by extension, anybody who may be listening, uh, what is the difference between urban and metropolitan? Yeah, so hmm, there are many ways to get there. Let's see. How do I want to do this? Well, maybe we'll just start um, with, let me turn the question back around on both of you. Uh, when, when you hear the word metropolis, what is it that you think of? 
Well, I usually think of skyscrapers or a physical location, sure. like pointing out New York City, Paris, uh, London. I guess hubs of commerce is how maybe I start to think of metropolis. And culture, mm -hmm. right? I mean, a, a metropolis tends to be something that you would think first and foremost of as a metropolis tends to be a place that, that exerts enormous amounts of both financial and cultural pull on the surroundings, mm -hmm. even on the entire rest of the world. You're both kind of beginning to define in terms of the, the metropolis. You're moving in the direction of one particular type, which is, I think, predictable given your location in the humanities, which is the modern metropolis. And typically, I guess, in the category of uh, the urban humanities more broadly, I think of the modern metropolis as this kind of world city that emerged around the mid 19th century and kind of is bookended, I guess, by World War One or World War Two. So that period from about 1880, but really like 1850, if you want to go back to Paris, mm. um, and then up to, I'm probably still more like 1880, because once you get into the, the question of urbanization, then it extends all through the 19th century. But the height of that moment is about 1880 up to 1930. And it's kind of this moment of world capitals, right, in a sense of, um, Urban, urban citizenship in a global world, or that's a, that's two words that mean the same thing next to each other, uh, <laughs> uh, in a cosmopolitan world. So that's one definition. There are kind of two others that people tend to reach for whenever I ask that question. One is the typical urban studies definition, which is just a, urban center, kind of a regional urban center. So you might think of somewhere like Detroit and how it uh, influences the, the region, but not necessarily the world. And then the other example, and typically it's also typified by a uh, agglomeration process, which is just the process of the city slowly overtaking the towns that surround it and enlarging itself that way, which New York went through obviously as well. Originally New York City was just Manhattan and then it um, gathered, I guess, the boroughs and today it, the metro, greater metropolitan area of New York consists of areas of, well, it's the tri-state area, Connecticut, New Jersey, and New York State, I think are the three. Yeah. So, um, and then there's the post-colonial metropolis, which is rooted in the colonial metropolis, which basically a post-colonial metropole or even a colonial metropole is the center of um, a center of a particular empire. So that could be national, but it's also often urban. It could also be kind of theoretical. Um, so just thinking in terms of center and periphery. Mm. You look like you have a question. What do you mean by a, a theoretical um, imperial center? Yeah, so in post-colonial studies, the metropole and colony are used as larger categories, so they don't always mean England or London in the case of the British Empire, but it means any, any metropole and any, um, any imperial, I guess, context. So 
for example, at the same time as the British Empire, there was the French Empire and their metropole would have been France, but also Paris. And um, before that, to the extent that you can call it the Spanish Empire, I guess, uh, since nations weren't really a thing in the 16th century, then Madrid, I think, was the metropole. Um, so just this idea that there is always this structure of metropole and colony at work in how we understand modern colonialism. This might be a really, um, I don't know, a very grand scheme question, but I guess I've just been thinking a lot um, of the colonies um, of New England and how they made this transformation into these metropolitan cities and but also the baggage of um well the setter the i think what i'm trying to get at is the settler colonialism um, atrocities and the marginalized groups that you know um helped build these cities up but then uh were dislocated or ignored or you know in the case of the native american tribes pushed out or you know uh, they murdered. murdered. Yes, thank you. Um, you know, is there are there current is there current thinking going on of seeing America as the imperial as an imperial power that you know you can trace it from the colonies? Because sometimes oh. I find that um, well, you know, a lot of American scholarship doesn't always like to turn the mirror back on itself. Yeah, no, that's a great question. And I think it gets to the heart of kind of what my project is and focusing on metropolitan modernity, which is basically looking at how colonialism and this kind of age of great 19th century empires underpins, but also going back to the 16th century is that for decolonialists, that originary moment when modern colonialism becomes the way that um, we're, I guess, so Emmanuel, oh, this is going to get really complicated really quickly. Emmanuel Fallerstein has this uh, concept called world system analysis, right? So there's this idea that in the 16th century, the worldview of Europeans forever changed, and really the entire globe forever changed through 16th century colonialism and Spanish, well, basically Iberian colonialism, which would be the Spanish and Portuguese, as well as obviously the British and the French and the Dutch all settled um, in and around Turtle Island, which is today uh, the continent of the Americas. Um, and I hope you're going to edit out my pauses <laughs> because I just forgot where I was going with that. <laughs> what was I saying? Well, so the 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 idea that the idea that you were starting to to enlarge upon before that I think is worth taking some time with because we're not all of us familiar with it of course mm -hmm. is this um, this idea of the the metropole versus the colony that that to me uh, evokes a book like uh, Heart of Darkness right where mm -hmm. every step that you take along the narrative is a step away from London away from light and usefulness and 
tranquility and um, and order and towards darkness and chaos and so on. Right. So is that is that the sort of thing you mean? Well, yeah, there's there's this kind of so even the idea of like a colony and a metropole has been problematized in a lot of ways because as I guess Andrew was also getting at, there's no there's not necessarily a a clear division between metropole and colony in many ways. For example, the the United States is a great example. Also, there are many Latin American capitals that are great examples of places that were initially colonies, but through settler colonialism by the 19th century have their kind of own imperial projects that are happening. So there's this kind of interplay, I guess, between colony and metropole that with my project, I would like to kind of begin to flesh out, which is thinking through, first of all, how is the modern metropolis always a product of colonialism in some way, which goes back to a decolonial tenet that modernity itself is produced by coloniality, which is probably something you're going to ask me to explain further. Would you explain that further, please? Yeah, so then we're going to circle back around to Wallerstein. So decolonialists use world system analysis as their way of thinking through colonialism. So post, they're kind of two different, I guess, discourses of that analyze colonialism and its after effects today. One is decolonial studies and the other is post-colonial studies. And post-colonial studies tends to focus on the 19th century empires, the French and the British, and that obviously creates a very specific discourse that doesn't deal particularly well with the Americas. Hmm. Um, and so what the decolonialists come up with as an answer to that is to return to Ballerstein and the idea that in the 16th century you have this originary moment of uh, colonialism in the Iberian empires and it's that that makes possible uh, industrialization and modernity as we know it not just for Europe but for the entire world that uh, there's this shift that occurs for the entire globe in that mo the the minute I guess Europeans get off of the European continent and start traversing the world. Uh, I, I want to cut in one of my favorite books about this is um, it's called Something Torn and New by Ngugi Wachongo, who is mm -hmm. a um, Kenyan philosopher. Not most of his works exist in translation because he decided that he instead of in using his uh, knowledge to enrich English. He was going to use what he'd learned from English and presumably other languages to enrich his native language of Kikuyu. Mm -hmm. um, but this one he wrote in English. It was a later essay after he'd sworn off writing in English. I guess he, he was like a smoker <laughs> who, who just needed one more puff. And uh, so he wrote, so he wrote uh, something torn and new and the, the history that he wrote was basically like, if you look at every wonderful thing uh, that we get out of European culture and by extension, American culture from the 1600s onward, right? Obviously Shakespeare and Titian and all of the other, you know, all the other things that we're justifiably proud of, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, et cetera. All of that is funded by Africa. Right, They're, they were our patron. If you wanna, if you wanna, put it as gently as you can. Right, 
Mm -hmm. And so the question that he and people, sort of like-minded people are asking is how to have an African Renaissance, but not fund it with human misery. Mm -hmm. So it's partly post-colonial and partly decolonial in its, in its scope. And that is, I mean, that, that of course brings in the, the literary angle as well, right? Because not only because he himself is a novelist and he works out a lot of his ideas in novels, mm -hmm. but also because a lot of how we measure a civilization is by its literature and other, and other artistic uh, contributions, right? Mm -hmm. We even call them, you know, artistic contributions. That's a, that's, a, that's a set phrase. And we don't think to ourselves when we're reading Jane, Jane Austen, for example, oh, thank goodness for the triangular slave trade because otherwise we wouldn't have had 18th century English gentlewomen with enough free time to sit down and write novels. Mm. Just like every time we pick up our cell phone, we don't necessarily think to ourselves, you know, parallel thoughts about where they come from. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But, and that's, oh, sorry. But that's so interesting because that kind of jumps right back, Adam, to Sophia's point about the biggest hurdle and obstacle on the job market is financial security. And yeah, exactly. To Virginia Woolf's A Room of One's Own, which there's a lot of critiques about, of course, and it comes from exactly what you're saying, which is, you know, her advice for women to write yeah, comes from a very privileged white, you know, Londoner perspective. So, but she's not wrong. Yeah, well, she's not wrong. Yeah, she just doesn't, she doesn't out her privilege. True. Right? True. Yeah. Um, well, they didn't have quite the same discourse back then, I guess, for... <laughs> Well, they created the discourse one yeah. at a time. Well, I think that's the important part about the beginning with the 16th century, but also recognizing like the 19th to early 20th century is the height of not just urban modernity, but also modernity is the way that so much of how we continue to think today is shaped by that moment. Like, yeah. for example, in my own research, um, the stakes are really how much urban modernity set the terms for the contemporary discourse on urban studies. Um, so, so that you can still have questions of development or not having developed and quotation marks being the defining factor, which basically means what, what cultures have successfully industrialized and which ones have not. Um, you know, these are still the terms of the conversation, basically. There, there are some people who are talking about and thinking about decolonial and postcolonial ideas in relation to urbanism and what that means to decolonize urban discourse today, but by and large, it's, it's back to, I guess, the modernist, the modernity, post-modernity question of can you be postmodern and not <laughs> without or have actually passed by modernity itself. Um, I did want to say we're kind of circling also with the references to both Heart of Darkness and um, Jane Austen, Said's work, basically, as well as not talking about U.S. imperialism. So Edward Said's culture and imperialism does exactly uh, what we're 
<clears throat> basically talking about, which is to turn the lens around on European cultures, but specifically British colonialism, and to examine the metropole. But also, it, he ends with the United States as a new form of imperialism that isn't. For him, he draws a distinction between colonialism and imperialism, which the more you fall down the rabbit hole, the less easy that distinction is to make. Uh, but basically the difference between formal, what you might also call formal and informal colonialism. And I was, as you're talking, um, I'm so glad you mentioned Saeed's work, but I was also thinking too, for those listening and for myself as well, um, cause I always love book lists is like, if you had to recommend one book to really think about this, um, urban or metropolitan distinction, is there a book that you would say, oh, everyone, you should start with this right away um, if you're interested in urban studies. Yeah, that's my book. No, there's no. <laughs> there's, I don't, to my knowledge, there is not, yeah, I am a, I am a lone wolf wandering around with these three discourses. Now, there, there are some people who are getting at some of the same questions, but not necessarily in book fields. So, um, yeah, I think it's a it's a discourse that people have really only just barely scratched the surface of. So there's an article in an anthology called Thick Space by um, the article. It's I think it's chapter it's chapter one or chapter two of the anthology. Don't rush out and buy the anthology for the one article, but <laughs> get it through interlibrary loan. <laughs> but it's by uh, Ignacio Furias and Suzanne Stemmler. There are a lot of other like great articles in the book, but you're just not going to get the same question answered by all of them. So that article is about deconstructing mm. the concept of metropolis. And there's a movement in Europe to start looking at what they're calling uh, metropolitan studies as an alternative to urban studies. And that article really foregrounded the idea that colonialism had to be a part of the conversation. Then there's Ananya Roy, who I believe is an urban geographer, and she's really calling for a decolonial look at um, knowledge making around urban studies today. And she titled one of her articles, The 21st Century Metropolis. And while she doesn't really delve into what makes metropolis distinct from urban, I think the choice of word there was very carefully chosen and that she was basically pointing out the metropolis has a colonial context that the urban doesn't. So to get back, I guess, as well to Adam's question about what's the difference between urbanism and the metropolis, we also need to introduce the idea of the city. Uh, because urban, urban and urbanization is a process, right? It's not necessarily, which we've learned in the 21st century, doesn't necessarily lead to cities. You could be in an urbanized area that isn't, isn't a formal city. So a city is kind of our concept of like a bounded space, or it's clear what constitutes the city itself. It's defined, it has borders. Urban discourse, there's this ahistorical sense that we're, we're dealing with, we are, so we are dealing with an unprecedentedly urban world, basically, that according to the UN, and there have been scholars like Neil Brenner and um, Ryan, I always forget if it's Reinhold or Reinhard Martin, uh, but whichever it is, um, that we're living. So the definition of, oh, we're in the urban age and over 
50% of the world's population lives in urbanized areas, which doesn't necessarily mean over 50% of the world's population lives in cities, um, is a very kind of idiosyncratic definition created by the UN. So it's kind of a question mark. Does over 50% of the world live in what we understand as urban areas or, or not? And it seems to be something that's still very much up for debate, though it's not what I work on, so it's harder for me to define it. But those would be two places where you could look for that discourse, Neil Brenner and Reinhold Martin, I think. Um, so what was I going to say in relation to that? So there's this, but there is this kind of discourse that emerges around that that has to do, and this gets back to Ananya Roy, with the difference between, say, global northern cities and global southern cities. And so a global northern city would be somewhere like Paris, New York, Berlin, Barcelona, places that have this kind of um, usually they're in Europe or the United States and they're, the bulk of their urbanization process was done, I guess, more in the late 19th to early 20th century under a different paradigm. And then you have, uh, and so those cities are defined by um, what Kingsley Davis kind of incorrectly, and again, a historically argues, uh, is a commensurate process of both population growth and accompanied by infrastructure, infrastructural growth at the same time. The argument today is that population growth is exploding without um, commensurate infrastructural growth. So you can have the population growing rapidly in a given place, but without necessarily formal modes of urbanization occurring at the same time, right? Like without Mm. um, running water, without electricity, without, so typically what comes to mind when you think of that would be shanty towns. And so that, that discourse tends to get solely applied to global Southern cities. And you can see the racism beginning to emerge (laughs) in the way that these two things are divided. There's a great novel, I forget the name of the author, it's um, called Shantytown Kid in English, or it's uh, Le Gond du Chabat in French, but it's that's Maghreb French. Um, and that book opens in the shantytowns outside of Paris, where also there's no running water and no electricity. Uh, so you could, there are ways that you could apply that same discourse to global northern cities, but it just doesn't get applied that way. Quick interruption, when, do, when does this novel take place? Mm, I think it's in the 90s. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, but I was gonna say, even just taking the, um, the train from De Gaulle Airport in Paris mm-hmm. to, um, I'm trying to think. Well, to um, like- The city center. The city center, thank you. Um, uh, that you pass through some of these, I guess, what are defined as shanty towns. Um, and even I know there's a lot of tent cities, at least when mm-hmm. you're going to the airport, they've set up a lot of um, immigrant tent communities. And then I know that that was also happening in Los Angeles, I'm pretty sure, um, and other areas um, in the West. But yeah. I guess when you just brought up that global north versus global south and how there's this racist strain appearing, 
every time you keep saying metropolitan or urban or cosmopolitan, I always think of how that's used as adjectives. Like, oh, you know, and we brought up Edith Wharton and you think, oh, that's such a cosmopolitan person. Like there's also these privileging of what does that adjective usually define as people who live in the city. Correct. And I'm thinking there's also a lot of pathologization when people use urban mm -hmm. to define yeah. people. Um, and I guess, I don't, is there a reason you think these prejudices exist or why they're useful to certain people? Oh, that's such a big question. I mean, so there is a decolonialist, Anibal Quijano, who argues that basically race was invented in the 16th century as a consequence of colonialism, as well as as a justification of colonialism. And we live with kind of the dual discourse of race, the emergence of race, as well as universalism. Mm -hmm. um, so this idea, one, that there, there is a kind of universality to European culture that can then be mapped on to everywhere else. And that it's the, I guess these two concepts are linked in the sense that it is racial inferiority and cultural inferiority that then creates um, this kind of time lag between European modernity and everywhere else. So there's this, there's a real temporal, it's very complicated, I guess, sort of urbanization and its relationship to temporality and also its relationship to nationhood, to globalization, to kind of an earlier form of globalization, which is the imperial world of the 16th to um, late 19th centuries. And it, yeah, there's definitely a way that we live with that legacy of what was created in the 16th century when the concept of race is a justification for um, colonialism came into existence. And I think that that has just, insofar as cities have both been the nodes of that, the administrative nodes of that colonialism, as well as the direct beneficiaries of colonialism, there's a way that that has become mapped onto the language as well. So that today we can talk about the, the metropolis and that refers to a very specific type of city that emerged in the late 19th to early 20th centuries. But if you wanna talk about urbanization in the global South, oh, those aren't metropolises. And that goes back to Kingsley Davis again, who makes that argument, those aren't metropolises, those are mega cities or mega policies or megalopolises like this kind of idea that oh those places just exploded too quickly and they they didn't follow the correct trajectory of development and so yeah i mean it's there just seems to be something in the way i guess that um developmentalism and racism are both just in the ether of our culture, that then it pervades urban discourse. Well, so, so what's what's fascinating about this is that it maps very closely onto discourses that a lot of people are having, right? I mean, 
think think about the success of a novel or series of novels like uh the the um, the hunger games right mm-hmm. Where, uh, um instead of instead of having like an american empire and a world that's colonially bound to it you have instead like a fracturing of the american empire yeah. and mm-hmm. districts right yeah, yeah. Districts <laughs> to, to yeah. essentially capital capital city and colonial mm-hmm. outskirts in exactly the way that you've been describing, mm-hmm. right? So that these colonial outskirts pay tribute to the capital and the capital, everybody is rich and dyes their hair and sparkle, I don't know, dazzles or whatever, whatever it is that they do. And in, the, and in the outskirts, everybody's got coal dust on their face because they had an overzealous uh, costume designer. Mm-hmm. Um, right, and, and so, so even, even though one of one of the things that we're always um, sort of thinking about in this in this podcast is that um, a lot of what we talk about are the things that everybody else is talking about or everybody else is thinking about. We just we use more precise and unfortunately more obscure words to describe it. But but this is this is definitely very much in the the uh, of of moment sort of right yeah I mean, to the to the extent that we're talking about who is a citizen of the united states and who isn't even though we're all living here right we've got illegal immigrants uh so-called mm-hmm. uh, undocumented immigrants we've got um uh people of whose face is a different color and so they're afraid that when they go outside they will be stopped by the police with little or no pretense, et cetera, right? So, so the, the extent to which citizenship is the property or the, the privilege of every citizen mm-hmm. is very much in the discourse right now. And so what you are going to end up having, of course, is people who are scholars who are studying this in one way and people who are novelists, who are uh, journalists, et cetera, studying it in a different way. And the, the hope is that Mm-hmm. those various groups and, and of course lay people who are just, just uh, studying this so to speak at their kitchen table or over the phone or whatever mm-hmm. and the hope of course is that those discourses can blend together um, yeah. and offer each other their resources and their insights yeah and, I'm glad you brought up um, yeah go on Hunger Games because there's also a very similar thing that so I think that this is a very common setup actually in a lot of sci-fi as well um, or dystopian fiction because Westworld does something on HBO does something very similar as well which is they said I love that show actually because they set up all of these different um all of these different uh what are those called what is Disney it's a it's an amusement park all of these different amusement parks um that are colonially themed then that starts to come out more in season two, I think, because in season one, you just have settler colonial United States, uh, kind of like frontier, the frontier land, right. um, which is Westworld. Uh, but then in season two, they also introduce Raj World, and then they introduce um, their, do they call it Shogun World, I think? Yeah, it's <laughs> either Samurai World or Shogun World. But in either case, they made a really interesting choice in the uh, reboot of the show to go with all colonial look errors, kind of, colonial imaginaries because even though Japan was never formally colonized there's this kind of exoticization that I guess goes on with Japanese culture as well through these 
samurai stories or even just the the relationship i guess that they wanted to draw between uh samurai films and their narrative appropriation into western films but that was really interesting and then in season three they introduced the real world which is just a city mm. just one big modern pretty looking city very manicured it's like a very particular type of city i guess and they don't introduce a larger world outside of that world. So that's all we've got for the real world, I guess, by season three. And so there's this, but there's immediately this kind of juxtaposition between urban elites versus kind of global or world peripheries. I like to think of um, Hunger Games as being a little bit less colonial in the sense that what they, what ended up happening in Suzanne Collins, is it? novel is that she more narrates I guess the story of the nation right and the kind of divide that we're seeing right now particularly after the 2016 election between what um, I guess the media liked to call urban elites versus the sort of rural folk of the nation mm -hmm. kind of narrative and I think all of these things whether it's colonial or it's at the national or regional level do kind of map onto each other or in a lot of ways come together to, I guess, illustrate how cities themselves serve as nodes of power, but are often juxtaposed with a kind of national imaginary of the nation being in the country. And there does seem to be a kind of swing back and forth between those two imaginaries. Well, the issue, the issue in, uh, the issue in a, in a novel like that is that is, is similar to the issue in the wider world today, which is that, if you have if 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 you have an imperialist society, then every aspect of your society will be imperialist. And um, one one line that, that keeps getting quoted from Frederick Douglass, who lived in the United States but very much lived in an imperialized world, right, a colony essentially within the nation itself, is I think he wrote um, in the South everyone is looking to whip somebody else. Mm -hmm. Right. And so if you look through the memoirs of the slaves, uh, the memoirs of the masters, the memoirs of everybody, you will see that dynamic playing out. If, if the language that you speak is the language of the whip, you're not going to learn a different language to speak to your own family. So you'll end mm -hmm. up with corporal punishment being the language, not only with which parents speak to their children, but with which spouses speak to each other. Mm -hmm. um, in the journal of uh, William Johnson of Natchez, who was a black slave owner um, in the deep South, he describes whipping his own mother. Yeah, exactly. That's not an okay thing to do. But if that's your language, you are going to speak that language everywhere. And so we in the United States, we have this sort of, um, only a pawn in their game mentality where at least we're better than so-and-so, right? So mm -hmm. we must be doing okay. But in, mm -hmm. a, in a work like Frederick Douglass, in a, uh, Frederick Douglass's various memoirs, in a work like um, Susan, Suzanne Collins's novels, you get to see that the colony doesn't stop at the shores. The colony isn't necessarily over there. If, if you're a colonial power, then everything is colonial. Yeah. And I think that's the sort of the root as well of decolonial thought, which is that 
colonialism or coloniality is what they call it. It's a kind of logic of colonialism that is pervasive in society. Right. Yeah. Well, and I just remember when I searched for, um, did like a li library catalog search in the local Long Island Public Library near Maine and tried to find anything I could of anti-racism and looking against settler or destabilizing settler colonialist narratives. And I mean, I did come across a book that I keep recommending to everyone, which is an indigenous people's history of the United States by Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz. But like other than- Oh, I have that actually. Yeah, but other than her narrative on a public scholarship level, it's very hard to find other comprehensive. I mean, I think Howard Zinn has a history of the US that looks at indigenous communities but it's difficult to find a large catalog. And yeah. I think that says a lot about um, the American imaginary of settler colonialism and yeah, yeah. and how people have bought into this mythology, especially white settlers, because it continues that American dream narrative for them. Um, right. But yeah, it's- but I mean I think you can say the same even within the academy that there's a real problem in terms of post-colonial thought or black thought or decolonialists as well of being like special interest subjects right like something that you can work on urbanism from a decolonial perspective but that's not the it's not required for example that you confront the question of colonialism and its relationship to urbanism and i think that that in general that's a that's a problem that also yeah exists in the public discourse as well just this idea that um that there's some kind of neat clean subject that you can analyze and if you want to analyze it through a post-colonial lens then you're welcome to but that's not really necessary or required well, and instead just becomes like a peripheral approach. Well, one of the things that we do talk about uh, in the discourse of anti-racism is how these systems reproduce, right? How these systems protect themselves, so to speak. And one of the ways, when, so when, when I was setting up my dissertation chapters for the first time and I was talking to one of my advisors, she said, you are, you kind of need to have for 16th, 17th century English literature, you kind of need to make your dissertation primarily about Shakespeare, Edmund Spencer, and or John Milton. Now there are ways not to do that. I had another advisor who didn't. And then some people cover basically all of them. But right, those three people who were all of them were in England. It's not like, and all of them were in London specifically, this, this, uh, this, the kind of proto-metropolis to use, to use the language of your discourse, right? It, it's not mm -hmm. like, we, it's not like you have to do um, Shakespeare and one Peruvian guy and one writer from the Andaman Islands. No, no, no. It's all, it's all from one place. It's, all one subject it's all like people who 
themselves modeled their own writing after the Latin imperium that came before them. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and why do, why do I have to do that 400 years later? I mean, granted, I like Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of people get into academic academics because they like Shakespeare, but why do I still have to do that? It's because money talks. And because when I go on the job market, I have to be able to say, yes, I can teach the 2000 or 3000 level Shakespeare class mm -hmm. that you are inevitably going to offer every single semester. Mm -hmm. Now, don't get me wrong. There's some really good stuff in Shakespeare. You could, you could read his plays every day for the rest of your life and never run out of things that were new. But to use the example I was using earlier, I feel the same and more about Frederick Douglass, mm -hmm. right? I mean, he has fewer books, but they're really good books. Yeah. And there should be every semester, there should be a Frederick Douglass class in the university. Is yeah. there? Not so much. Uh, Frederick Douglass taught himself to read and then became that level of, that level of writer. So, I mean, can you imagine how good he would have been if he had started at age six instead of at age 20? Anyway, this is a bit of a rant, but the, the, the idea I think holds, which is, that, which is that we are inside of a system that is perpetuating the things that we are trying to question. And if you're an independent scholar and you have your own sort of forms of revenue and your own forms of like getting your message out there, uh, look, look down at the bottom for a, a <laughs> website, um, then you then you can to some extent escape these um, these constrictions on your discourse, but you can't fully no matter what because you have to speak in a language that people understand, and part of that means referring to books that they've read. Part of it re means referring to ideas that have currency in their discourse, etc. And it's mm -hmm. it sucks. It just sucks. And there's nothing. There's there's only so much you can do about it. Well, it takes me back to um, Henry Louis Gates has a great article, and I can't remember the title off the top of my head, but it's about the canon of, basically the canon of literary theory, mm. and how there was a time in his life when he believed that if he could just master, which is going to, I guess, take us in the direction of Audre Lorde and her sort of important quote that you can't dismantle the master's house with the master's tools. Yeah. There was a time when he believed that if he could just master the discourse, that then he would have the ability to dismantle um, racism. And in that article, he was stating basically, no, we just need our own canon. <laughs> we, can't, we, we can't continue to have to deal with this canon. There's got to be a new canon. And I think that that gets at a lot of what you're describing, Adam, as well as um, probably what many of us deal with in our research, which is the obligation to engage with a set and a pretty expansive set number of texts that forms your, I guess, common ground mm -hmm. um, with other scholars in your discourse. For me, working primarily on urbanism, that's Osmanization and Paris in the 19th century. And there's no getting around it, <laughs> whatever you do, like you're going to have to deal with him, even if ultimately there are other, you know, there's the occasional book that questions his role in the urbanization of Paris and, and hmm? 
Pardon? Deals with whom? Oh, uh, Baron Osman. He's the he's the urban planner who is typically credited with um, turning Paris into the modern Paris that we know today. So the the man who created boulevards and the sewer and water systems there, many of the monuments uh, during the Second Empire, which is the 1850s to about 1870, it's the end of the Second Empire. So basically he creates the Paris that we then associate with the Belle Epoque, which mm. is that kind of most, I guess, famous period in Parisian history for Just like the, the world. The department store. Mm -hmm. Era, yeah. the gallery Lafayette and the high yeah. okay okay yeah this yeah. isn't the exactly. Victor Hugo Les Miserables Paris right yeah no I mean yes and no right because he's writing during that time period but nostalgically for the past it's back, yeah. yeah and Charles Baudelaire is kind of the iconic poet to talk about Osmanization because he wrote a lot of his Parisian poetry as Osmanization in Paris was happening. Mm -hmm. So, and Baron Osman gets credited with being the inventor of modern urban planning. And there's a way that that's true. Um, and then there are many ways in which it's not true, right? For example, London modernized sooner than Paris did. His Paris just happens to be I guess, more iconic in the world imaginary than London is specifically as a, as an urban center. And also when we're talking about modern planning, yeah, he, in a lot of ways created what we associate with the modern city or modern urbanization, but the tactics he used are very much rooted in colonial tactics for building colonial cities in Latin America, kind of thinking through Ame Césaire's um, claim that anything that you find in European modernity was tested in the colonies. <laughs> so applying that, you can see a lot of the urban planning strategies that were implemented to modernize, even though those cities themselves are not built in the modern style, they're built in a Baroque style, but it's the same, it lays the groundwork, I guess, for how to go about you know, raising a city and then rebuilding it, which is another thing that, thanks to Walter Benjamin, Baron Osman is famous for, is for pretty cruelly pushing out the, uh, the working class in the city center um, and knocking down the city and then rebuilding it. A great novel to read, actually, that uh, describes that process is um, The Ladies' Paradise by Emile Zola, uh, which was written in 1883, but is about that like time period and sort of centers around the department store. It's a fun read, but it juxtaposes old and new Paris. Mm -hmm. And that then becomes the model for urbanization across the world. So every, most major modern metropolises have kind of a an homage to the Parisian style of city planning, whether that's Buenos Aires, Mexico City, Manila, um, Beirut, I think as well. Cairo has its own kind of, it's got two. <laughs> it's got the modern that they built alongside the old rather than knocking down the old and building the modern on top of it because I guess there just wasn't time for their exposition to raise the city and build a new one. So, 
and so there, there are ways that, that that urban planning model resonates and it's good to be familiar with it. But to, the way that Benjamin kind of immortalizes it as the point zero of urban planning is a historical and kind of needs to be undone and creates both in the social sciences and in the humanities a sort of obligation for scholars like myself to <laughs> always be dealing with Paris alongside whatever else you're doing. Right. I mean, I mean, we've talked on this program before about how Central Park was built uh, in a place where people were already living and were very politely asked to leave. Right, Seneca uh, Village. Say it again? Uh, that was Seneca Village. Seneca Village. And presumably it wasn't the, the wealthy and connected who were living there. Um, I think it was, it was a black community. I mean, yeah, so now people kind of try to claim like, oh, it wasn't, a, it wasn't a nice community, but I think it was a bourgeois, like black community, but, you know, they didn't certainly didn't outrank the white gilded age elite. So, right. I mean, what's yeah. a what's a nice community? I was at Columbia when they were trying to take over Manhattanville to mm -hmm. uh, build labs and other things. Uh, this was in um, this was 2004 to 2008 when I was there, and one of the things that they were arguing was look at what a you know look, look at what a dump this is we can we can do something with it but mm -hmm. they were already the landlord for a significant portion of the of the of the area so them saying look what a dump this is they have that, that doesn't if it's a dump then why would you entrust the people who made who helped make it a dump to revitalize it wouldn't you give that to somebody who has a better track record right. so it's it, it ends up being a massive conflict of interest. Um, and so of course, but, but the, sorry, the point I wanted to make vis-a-vis uh, -vis Central Park is that that predates the, re the revitalization of Paris, right? That, mm -hmm. that was already, already New York uh, was thinking about, you know, becoming a metropolis and having like a center uh, of, the, of beauty and culture in their, in their landscape. Right. Well, isn't it the 1850s when the grid system starts from above the Greenwich Village area? Yeah, I think so. I think it's because, well, with Whitman, he's very fascinated with the grid being built. Yeah. And documents it. And like, I didn't know all of the farmlands were on the Upper West and the Upper East Side because of the slopes mm -hmm. and the hills. And yeah. Um, yeah, actually, it might even be. Like yeah, a lot, a lot of the city was invented, and yeah, yeah, like the, <laughs> the Washington Square to South is the oldest section. Well, Wall Street yeah. is the oldest section, right? Um, but like, it's so interesting now when you walk around Manhattan, and maybe this will go into your, you mm -hmm. know, how walking is so foundational for your research, Sophia, and I think so many scholars are what we see on our in our everyday life um and interact with but i've always fascinated coming from the philly area we have an old city like mm -hmm. they kept the old city and they do not want to knock down any of those buildings um right you can go to the liberty bell you can go to independence hall you can see where they signed the constitution you can see benjamin franklin's house mm -hmm. all of that betsy ross's house all of that has been maintained um but then we have center city and that's like the more urban metropolitan center 
Um, Presumably, I mean, most of it has been maintained as a museum. It's not like people are still holding meetings uh, underneath uh, in the plaza where the Liberty Bell is being displayed. Well, it's a big site of protest, actually. So no, they still meet there. Um, but like, are you saying, do they go in those buildings all the time? No. <laughs> yeah, you'd have to... I mean, use the use the three and four hundred year old conference tables and say, okay, what? Um, let's out. Let's read the minutes from from last. Week. Yeah, it doesn't happen. Yeah, no, that's not right. happening. But, but there's a way that that time period is kind of the glory days of Philadelphia, right? Because there was a time. I think, and this is, I guess, just useful to talk about as well. There was a time when uh, New York wasn't the obvious like future economic center of the nation. That Philadelphia was actually the leading city. Mm -hmm. um for the 18th to early 19th century yeah it was the capital well, for a little time yeah. um, until the south got very angry um, <laughs> that new york and philly were dominating the centers um of commerce and trade and banking all of that but mm -hmm. i guess my point is it is really interesting now how especially during a pandemic transportation, public transportation specifically, has become a site of fear. And, um, you know, is it sanitary or not? How comfortable am I taking um, trains, subways, high-speed rail, all of that? Right. And there are people who have the option not to. Yeah, and you, like me, I realize having a car, even just driving around, there's like passing all of these different sites and communities, like who isn't able to easily access other areas because they don't have cars. Um, and, you know, they put themselves in harm's way by being in more congested. I mean, seeing pictures of the subway, I remember during the height of the spread in New York City, like that, there was such a risk associated with that, but people, and mostly, um, you know, people of color, um, frontline workers who had to take the subway to get to their jobs, you know, mm -hmm. that wasn't the case for those who were working uh, in suburban areas or those who could work from home, right? And there's so many tensions there, I think, as well. Um, yeah, I don't know. I guess. I'm trying to think of where I was going with that. Um, except well, I do what I mentioned. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Oh, go. Yeah. Uh, um, going back to Adam's point about uh, urbanization in New York predating Paris in a lot of ways, there's a really interesting line in um, Louis Aragon. This, well, he was a surrealist, and then he shifted out of it because he felt surrealism wasn't political. It was pretty apolitical. And so, but in his book that he has kind of, iconic book that he wrote before he left the surrealist camp, uh, Paris Peasant in English. There's this line about how Paris actually, the urbanization of Paris imitated the New York model or the American model of urbanization that I think is, it's just such a blip in this, in the novel itself. But I guess if you're studying this question, then it stands out as like, hey, wait a minute, Louis Aragon is asking the important questions here, pointing to them. And it's true, there are ways that uh, urbanization in the United States also served as 
both a very unique model as well as as an influence to European urban centers. And that gets, that gets lost. I guess it's the, probably the easiest way to relate it is, is anytime we sit down to write an article, right? The easiest thing to do is to create a linear narrative because writing itself is linear. Mm. But the story of urbanization is very far from linear. Even the question of what, what city had the first department store is a matter of sort of urban and national competition. Was it Paris or was it New York? So yeah, there's, it's, it's interesting because the more you kind of play around with these concepts, the more you kind of discover that it's more of a constellation and less of a development narrative. But of course, what happens is that it's just easier, I guess, to write a linear history. And it's also, a lot of it is rooted in chauvinism and yeah. just, you know, national narratives and competitions. Well, who's going to write the history and how do we <laughs> frame our nation as the one that invented everything? Yeah. Well, modern Paris is so interesting because I know there's a rule, like you can't build... Um, skyscrapers in actual the center of Paris like they now mm -hmm. have that new section is it called La Defense or there's a know. certain new section. I know what you're talking about though if you like about. look down the Seine you can see this like horrible looking yeah, like, <laughs> skyscraper these, like, development model skyscrapers and there's a mall there um and I remember when I went for a Whitman week there and met different Parisians, they said, oh, you need to come to this mall. It's just like being in um, America. And they took me to this uh, shake burger place. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was humorous because I could see through their eyes, they thought this was very Americana. Um, mm -hmm. And then like coming back to the Northeast and going to what are deemed at Parisian places or you know, mm -hmm. we're going to take you to the bakery. That's exactly like being in Paris. It's, this happens globally, this humor of, you know, modeling different um, metropolitan areas. Well, typically if you go in, in New York to a bakery that says Parisian on the outside, it's run by Koreans. Yeah. Oh yeah, like a... I forget what it's called, but there's, there's a chain. Paris Baguette. That's oh, cool. Paris Baguette, yes, yes. Yeah. I was also going to say, what's that other one, Europa? Sure. There's yeah. like another, in Times Square area, they have I think you're right, there's a chain called Europa as well. I'm not sure who runs that. I don't know, yeah. but... Oh, there's it, a lot of chains with uh, French influence, I guess, like Au Bon Pain. Yeah, it sells. Yes, yes. Um, as, if, as, if, as if they're the only ones who figured out how to bake bread. <laughs> Such it's such a difficult concept, but it hey Paris sells. I think that's uh, that's exactly, the general lesson. It's true. If you actually, if you actually credited the original, the original like bakers of bread, people wouldn't know what the hell you were talking about. Like, put an ancient Egyptian bakery, <laughs> or like an a Stone Age Indus Valley bakery in the in the middle of Times Square and see how long that lasts next to Paris. <laughs> yeah, probably not long, although I would love I would love to see it. I would get, I would absolutely go there. Yeah. And yeah, those by the way, this is this is a stupid tangent. Those by the way, exist. people people who try to deduce recipes, 
not only from things like like what did Shakespeare eat for lunch, that sort of thing, that perennial question, but also like what did I don't know Nefertiti mm-hmm. eat for lunch? And they they have made a decent uh, they've made it some decent progress with that. Yeah. Nice. Well, and I feel yeah, that's so interesting because it gets back to place again. And I'm just so glad, Sophia, that you're doing such this necessary research and yes. digging into the um, inquiry of the metropolis because, right, we're all, um, we all wake up somewhere. I mean, I'll make it as yeah. general as possible. But what's so fascinating to me is I've always had, and I love architecture and I love buildings and mm-hmm. Adam could tell you, I have an obsession about housing and like what different yeah. suburban environments look like. It's, it's um, becoming a concern actually. <laughs> but yeah, if, if I ever see a home in a state magazine, I just grab it. I love to just see, you know. Oh, it's fun though. It yeah. is, it's enjoyable. It is. Um, but, and I'm curious yeah. that, it's so interesting. There isn't a lot of scholarship on housing and, mm-hmm. um, you know, different kinds of centers. And I'm curious as you're walking, like you're on the Upper West Side. So I'm assuming when you take mental health walking breaks, that's what I call mine. Um, you know, of which I what should is take it? more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, sadly, it's been pouring here the last two days. But, um, you know, how has it, how have you checked in with New York City right now? And especially being in Manhattan during a time of uncertainty, like Mm. what's the feeling out on the streets? Oh, good. Yeah. I mean, I feel like it's just, it's like New York has got New York to themselves now, right? Like we've gotten rid of all those tourists that everybody likes to make fun (laughs) of. And now New York is just ours. That's, I mean, that's the feeling that I get. Um, I've, yeah, I've walked all over. I'm also married to someone who, to me, seems like an extrovert. He keeps saying he's an introvert, and I really do not believe him. But he's, he wants to go out all the time, right? Like, he's, he's been missing dim sum in Chinatown for a while. So (laughs) that was, uh, that was my first venture, I think, onto the subway, because I'm pretty happy to, like, never leave the apartment, much less the neighborhood, the walkable neighborhood, in part because I feel like all I really need in life is I need to take a walk. Like it's something I don't want to do. And so once I'm out, it's kind of like, well, I should exercise. I don't want to get on the subway and go somewhere. I want to just walk around and get the exercise that I'm not going to get any other way. But yeah, I mean, everywhere we've gone, everybody has been, it hasn't felt abandoned. People have been out and about. I mean, it's quiet, for example, in Times Square, but there are people there um sometimes you can find it's great it's an instagrammer's dream honestly because you can find whole blocks where there's no one and you can get a picture easily without anyone walking into your frame (laughs) but it's a good time to be photographing new york but yeah i don't i don't know you know coming away from this interview how are you feeling in terms of just yourself as an independent scholar and the contributions you're making, optimistic? I mean, how are you weighing in on this uh, question? Yeah, that's a good question. Oh, um, I mean, uncertain. Uh, I think, I mean, I'm excited about, there are parts of my research I'm excited about. There are parts that I feel like I could leave behind permanently and be 
be satisfied. Um, I'm really excited to get back to the idea of the metropolis and thinking through it as a, I don't want to say definitely not the only decolonial space because I think that there's a lot of room moving forward and I hope someone will do this work of finding non-European models of urbanism and putting those forward as alternatives. But in I'm enthusiastic about the concept of the metropolis as a way to go about critiquing how we talk about urbanism and how we talk about cities in what is being called the urban age, um, the 21st century. But I think, I'm, so I'm excited to get back to that. I'm excited to think through the relationship between um, world and city, globe and city, because to me, this kind of question of uh, are we in the global age or the urban age? It's both, right? Like you need a you need an administrative center for <laughs> any kind of globalization. And Saskia Assassin, I think, identified contemporary cities as that. So I, I think there's a lot of work to be done, particularly I'm really enjoying reading Ananya Roy and I'm starting to dig more into that side of urban studies and the few people who are trying to think through what is decolonial urban studies. And uh, yeah, I don't know, I'm moving away from Edith Wharton, much as I love her. She's a great example of, you know, so the, the article that I recommended uh, by Ignacio Frias and Suzanne Stemmler, they made one to me like critical mistake, which is they said that the application of the modern metropolis to the 19th to early 20th century is ahistorical and that that was invented in the later 20th, the latter part of the 20th century. And I mean, Wharton is the great example of someone who uses metropolis specifically to refer to um, urban centers in the late 19th to early 20th century, like during that time period. So I'm that part I, I really like her for. That's what I do. Because I think you asked me that question about how does Wharton come into my work, basically mm -hmm. as an example of someone who uses that language. Yeah. Well, thank you. I know there's so much I'm going to be pondering after this interview. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I really have a question for you guys, which is what is the what is the imaginary space of the ivory tower boiler room? <laughs> hmm. I couldn't even begin to tell you. Um, we just we just like talking to people. I have well, see, in my mind, we're in a basement. We're we're in a basement in the humanities building. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, we're in boiler. Like, the lights are going on and off. Um, we're wearing fingerless gloves. That that's a uh, that's important. <laughs> but there's always coffee pouring. That I I'm insistent about the coffee. Better mm -hmm. tea. There's always some kind of warm beverage that. <laughs> No, it's a it's a fair question. Uh, like, w w where do we see ourselves in any sort of liter literal sense? But, and and the issue, of course, is that like we call ourselves the boiler room. There are actual boiler rooms in universities, and I've been through them, but never worked in one. Um, I, I mean, the day might be coming. With no, the Humanities well, are going. I used to do this. We used to sneak around the basements of Columbia all the time to see the pipeworks and the and the stuff like that. It was a lot of fun, and I felt very transgressive because of all the key, because of all the do not enter signs. Mm -hmm. so I was I wasn't just feeling I was literally transgressing. It wasn't like anyway. But um, yeah. there there is a there is a certain I mean 
there's a certain way in which we, we have to cop to our own privilege. The reason why we can do this for hours every week, the reason why we can pursue our scholarly pursuits is because we have the means and the time to do so. And, and that's, that's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so we are, we end up, we end up being privileged even as we talk about the ways in which privilege infests and poisons the discourse. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And on that optimistic note, yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm personally just always curious about the kind of the spaces that we create digitally, because that's sort of also, I mean, going back to my website, which you mentioned, Andrew, I, so I named it Maison Metropolitanist and kind of the idea is this, I, I called, I ended up calling it the digital dwelling place of the Metropolitanist, but it ended up being this like very, yeah, very spatial imaginary, which was its own like weird accident involving some website prospector who stole the Metropolitanist out from under me as a website. But I ended up with Maison Metropolitanist and I always like, it ended up being really fruitful, but I like to sort of wonder like what what kind of imagined spaces do we create for ourselves because I mean I can't afford a townhouse in Manhattan but but I like to imagine myself there on my website from time to time yeah no and that's it's productive right to think of what are we trying to create for ourselves um yeah, I think well, because you ended up with a spatial imaginary, right? Yeah. The boiler room. Well, we also have to, cre- I mean, when we make a Zoom call, like like the present one, uh, mm-hmm. where we can all see each other, or when we do the same thing with, uh, if we if we take in uh, tutoring students, which I do, right? You have, to, you have to give like a three foot square picture of your house or, mm-hmm. or of wherever it is you live, right? Um, that doesn't include you know, papers that you have yet to put away and laundry that you have yet to fold and stuff like that. Like it has to be, it, it, it's, it's basically a, a kind of lie, um, mm-hmm. but it's not a lie because it exists. You mean yeah. I haven't read all of these books behind me? Get on it. <laughs> Is that, isn't that the joy of being a scholar though, that you haven't read the books? Exactly. But that's always my favorite question when right. enters. They'll say, oh, and you've read all of these books on your shelf? No, so for for me, the the greatest joy of being a scholar is writing extremely rude things in the margins. (laughs) That's your joy. I've noticed, going back to what Andrew just said as well, is that on uh, Instagram, a lot of bookstagrammers will frame this um, buying books as if it's like some, it's a humble brag, first of all, but they frame it like, oh, it's like an illness. I buy all these books, but I don't get around to reading them. It's like, that's, that's just called being a reader. Mm-hmm. Like you buy, you're, it's very aspirational. You buy tons of books. And why would, why would you ever want to run out? <laughs> exactly. It's, Beautiful. it's like having extra pens. Like you always need, you never know if you can need them. But yeah, it's a mm-hmm. humble brag. It's not yeah, it's like, oh, this, this is so bad. It's like, no, it's not. That's it's that's so every book reader out there. You're not going to stop, are you? No. Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> but that's a good way to get likes, I guess, you know, because it's like everybody agrees with you. They also want to buy more books. So. Yeah. Well, I think as we end, um, I know I wanted to mention this. It's probably not going to make its way into the podcast, but you have me thinking a lot more 
Sophia, just about my own work in the transatlantic 19th American British empires. And um, mm-hmm. I love Toni Morrison's Playing in the Dark. Like I say to everyone, you need to read Toni Morrison's Playing in the Dark because she thinks about um, whiteness and how whiteness um, in mostly Moby Dick, but she looks at, um, I think she looks at the Scarlet Letter too, Um, but how there's always this reliance in the 19th century between uh, blackness, whiteness, what does that mean in terms of the legacy of slavery, and Mm -hmm. that American authors in the 19th century, I'm going to start to think more and more about oh, they're trying to create a certain settler narrative or like why, you know, even for Whitman, why does he have to create a speaker in his poetry who always imagines what America is? And it's like, it could be anything. I mean, Mm -hmm. there's so many catalogs of the speaker thinking of all the different areas of America. Um, And it's so interesting because you're right. It's this imagination like just trying to always imagine what the space looks like. Um, but again, what is that? What are the problems that this is fraught with? Like mm-hmm. these are not, you know, these are not equitable spaces yeah. for most of these writers. Um, but yeah, so no, thank yeah. you for that. Oh, great. That's <laughs> like the best compliment you can ever get, right? To hear that, <laughs> well, for me anyway, that people are going to think more about space is always a great compliment. <laughs> yeah. But this and was we, wonderful. We can, all, we can always hope that our that our writing influences somebody else's thinking. Um, and on that note, um, Sophia, thank you for joining us. Thank you for Please, having me. Everybody, look down uh, below the recording for Sophia's website, for uh, her book recommendations, for some of the other books that have come up in the discussion, and um, we hope you have more books than you can read. <laughs> Cheers to that. Okay. Thank you so much, Sophia. Thank you.